Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Each month, we will bring you the latest findings in Egyptological research and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Islamic, Coptic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. To suggest a topic for this program, please email us at podcast at rc.org. We are also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including virtual lectures and tours, by visiting our website at rc.org. That's A-R-C-E org. You can also support our work by joining our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. This month's podcast podcast focuses on the Egyptian priests of the Greco-Roman period, featuring Dr. Fatma Ismail, RC's U.S. Director of Outreach and Programs, in conversation with our guest, Dr. Marina Escolano Poveda, who is a lecturer in Egyptology at the University of Liverpool. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Marina Asclano Puveda is a lecturer in Egyptology at the Department of Archaeology, Classics, and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool, and a research fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation at the University of Tübingen. She obtained her PhD in Egyptology from the Johns Hopkins University in 2017. Her research focuses on the intellectual culture of Egyptian priesthood and temples of the Greco-Roman period. Within this area, she works on the study of astronomical, astrological, and early alchemical texts, as well as the so-called Hermetica. Her Humboldt project is called the Greek Hermetica as a product of the Egyptian priestly milieu of the Greco-Roman Egypt. She's currently a part of the Athribus project of the University of Tübingen, a specialist in astronomy and astrology, in which she's editing newly discovered astrological documents. She also works on the edition of demotic texts from several biological collections. Welcome, Marina, to RC's podcast on recent books and research. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your book on Egyptian priests. I feel there are not enough studies done on this topic. I, I understand your book is going to be out this month, inshallah. Yeah, and, um, inshallah. <laughs> I should read the full title for our listeners. It's called The Egyptian Priests of the Greco-Roman Period, an analysis on the basis of the Egyptian and the Greco-Roman literary and paraliterary sources. Uh, first, Marina, I want to ask you, how did you become interested in Egyptian priesthood? Um, this is a topic to which I arrived through my interest in Egyptian texts. So I, during my PhD, I specialized in uh, demotic literature, and I became really interested in all the priestly characters that appear in demotic texts. And I thought that this could be a very interesting topic to research because these texts were written by priests and were read by priests. So they sort of give an image of 
what they thought about themselves or how they sort of saw themselves, even though these are fictional fictional narratives, but they, they help us enter a little bit into the minds of, of these people. So this is how I, I arrived to this topic for my dissertation and then how it became um, this book. A group of texts written for priests by priests is significant. Ancient Egyptian priests played many vital roles in the society. In addition to religious responsibilities, they held political, economical, and even magical power. These priests were the guardians of the sacred knowledge and culture of their time. You studied the Hermetica texts. Uh, can you give us a little summary of what the Hermetica texts are and their importance? Yeah, this is this is a fascinating topic, and it's a it's a tricky topic because it has been seen um, in many occasions from an esoteric point of view and not very rigorous. Uh, but these texts are actually really interesting. This is a, a corpus of texts of very different characteristics, but they they are all attributed to this mythical figure of Hermes Trismegistus, who is associated with the Egyptian god Thoth, and also to, to his disciples. Um, these are a product of this um, multicultural world of um, of Greco-Roman Egypt. The main ones were written between the first and the third century CE, and uh, they they can be classified in two groups. We talk about the technical and the philosophical Hermetica. Within the technical Hermetica, we would find texts like uh, the astronomical, astrological sources, alchemical texts, or even magical texts. And then on the other hand, we have the philosophical Hermetica. There are the ones that are mostly known by the public, like the Corpus Hermeticum. There are these uh, philosophical texts that have a very important ritual part, and they mix uh, Egyptian elements with elements from Greek religion, but also religion coming from uh, from the Near East. So they, they have all these different elements that come together. But the interesting part, and this is something that I, I actually propose in the book, is that the, the context in which these texts were, uh, were, were written is actually Egypt. And normally, because they're written in Greek, they have been seen as detached from this Egyptian context, or even this Egyptian context has been seen as some exotic decor and just left aside. You know, you add some Egyptian names and it looks more exotic. And it's not actually like that. The Egyptian elements are really at the core of these of these texts. The reason why they use uh, Greek language is probably because that was considered to be the language of, of philosophy at the time. But what I propose is that the authors of these texts uh, were actually Egyptian priests within the context of the temples, and they were not created as a product for foreigners, but as an internal product of um, of this multicultural world uh, done by the Egyptian priests who were really the intellectuals of the time and were figures that were acquainted with uh, many different cultural currents in that in that world. So that's that's my, my main um, interpretation of these, what I contribute for uh, the understanding of these texts in that section of, of the book. And they were mainly found in Alexandria, Egypt, written in Greek, correct? Yeah, this uh, they, they have arrived to us through different manuscript traditions uh, in Greek. And then 
especially through Byzantine manuscripts later on. And at some points in their history, in their later history, they were translated into other languages like Latin, like Coptic, and then even uh, Syriac and Arabic. I'm glad your rigorous study will shed light on these important texts. It seems to me that some people have either elevated them to an esoteric level, like you said, or claim that they have influenced not just the Greek and Roman cultures, but also the much later Florentine and medieval Islamic cultures. For example, Cosimo de Medici, the ruler of Florence, asked one of his scholars to stop translating Plato's dialogues in order to work on translating Egyptian text of Hermes. What have you learned about the enduring influence of these Hermetic texts in the Greek-Egyptian exchange of ideas? The Hermetica have had a very long tradition afterwards in late antiquity, medieval times, and as you said, in the in the Renaissance. And they were considered at some point in parallel to the Bible. They were considered as this very old wisdom, a, a, a line of transmission of wisdom that came from Egypt and then moved on throughout antiquity and then up to up to that point. And yeah, as you say, uh, they were first, they entered the scene in Europe through Florence with this translation by Marsilio Ficino that was ordered by the by the Medici. So they kept influencing the the society in the in the European world and also in the Islamic world throughout this time up until the beginning of the 17th century and it was in the 17th century when they were proven to be a product of the first centuries of our era when they were revealed not to be as old when they started losing that importance but up until the beginning of the 17th century they were considered as really important philosophical and theological texts in parallel as I say with the Bible so that was a pretty big influence in all that tradition. You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. More information about our operations and programs can be found at rc.org. And if you would like to support the RC podcast, please visit rc.org slash podcast. Now we will go back to our episode with Dr. Marina Escolano Poveda. So you have looked at uh, early alchemical sources. Um, could you tell us more about these? I remember you have presented on this at the Tucson RC meeting as well. Yeah, these are these are also uh, sources that haven't been looked at very much. Um, they're very interesting. They're also written in Greek. Uh, but I, what I'm doing now is to connect them also with their Egyptian context. This is You see that there's this uh, constant of because of the language in which they're written, they te people tend to detach them from their Egyptian context, and I think that this is a mistake. Um, we see different stages in these sources. Uh, in the beginning, we see um, references to semi-mythical figures or real figures, but not um, like treated in a more legendary way, for example. Example, we have references to Cleopatra in Greek and Arabic sources as being an alchemist herself, which is really interesting. She would belong to these first stages. Then we start getting texts that are attributed to some known names, some of them to Hermes, Trismegistus, but also to Greek philosophers like Democritus. And these are texts that give recipes. They're 
actually technical text, recipes on how to make counterfeit gold and silver and, and tinctures for textiles and precious stones. So uh, how to make um, these very valuable uh, elements. And at some point we will see that there, we, we start seeing this blurred um, difference between what would be actually making counterfeit versions of these metals, for example, an actual transmutation. Um, and actually the first alchemist for whom we have information that we know that was a real person is Zosimus of Panopolis. And of course, Panopolis is Ahmim, so he was an Egyptian, uh, but he wrote in Greek. So normally he's seen from a, a classical perspective and not Egyptological. So what I've done in the book is to look at how he describes all these alchemical uh, processes, he uses allegories, and to connect them to the iconography that we find in the Egyptian temples. And then by doing this, I try to place him uh, within this temple milieu. We don't know exactly if he was a priest, it's not clear. He, um, What I think is that he belonged to the temple personnel, but perhaps was not an initiated priest. Um, but it's very interesting to see that this first uh, text that would be the origin of sciences like chemistry appear within this Egyptian context of the of the temples. Wow, fascinating. And let's not forget the term alchemy itself is probably derived from the ancient name for Egypt, chemi and demotic and coptic. These texts provide further evidence for Egypt's central role in creating and transmitting ideas in the ancient Near East. So Egypt has been a very important place in the transmission of ideas uh, since antiquity in the whole area of the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean, and in particular of scientific ideas. Uh, one of my articles that is, is coming out uh, early, early next year in the journal Encoria presents an astronomical table uh, in which we see... Um, Written in the Motic, we see some concepts that we knew only from astronomical papyri uh, written in Greek that appear originally in this, in written in the Motic. And we see that some of the vocabulary that we see in the Greek papyri and some of the symbols that are used are actually borrowed from the Motic. And all this is showing us that many of the ideas that originated in Mesopotamia, uh, astronomical ideas that originated in Mesopotamia, were transmitted to the classical world through Egypt. So Egypt was that very important link for the transmission of ideas that then would become the origin of disciplines like astronomy in, in later periods and would develop later on in the in the in medieval times and, and even later. Can you please guide us through the different sections of your book? It has two main parts, right? Yeah, it has two parts. Uh, part one is um, sort of like a review of all these priestly characters uh, in three sections. So first I look at the Egyptian sources and mostly uh, narrative uh, demotic sources. And I analyze all the priestly characters that appear in these in these narratives, of course, in the ones that have been published that are available because there's so much demotic literature that is still being edited. Um, then there's a, a second part within this part one about Greco-Egyptian literature. And this is uh, the literature that was written in Greek, but was written by Egyptians. So we're still... Um, in this area of the point of view of the Egyptian priests uh, of themselves in these literary and paraliterary sources. 
Uh, and within this part, I analyze texts written by actual Egyptian priests like Manitho and Karamon, um, and also what we call the Hermetica. Um, and within this, I talk about the, the different types of, of uh, priests that appear in this um, hermetic text, like the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri or the philosophical hermetica. And then the, the third part of this part one is about uh, Greco-Roman literature. So these are uh, images of priests, so priestly characters that are... Um, that appear in Greek and Latin sources. So they have been created by, by foreigners, by non-Egyptians. So they're very interested because they help us contrast these images with the ones created by Egyptians, since they're roughly contemporary. And then I, there's a, a second part in the book in which I use the conclusions to which I arrived in this first part, const- contrasting all these images to try to obtain an image of what uh, was this uh, context of the Egyptian priesthood in, in Greco-Roman Egypt. And there I question a series of models that have been used uh, very often in this analysis, especially by classicists. And I set them against what we see in the actual primary sources. And my conclusion is that these models perhaps should be should not be used anymore. And then in the end, I provide a more nuanced uh, image of all of how we should see all these all these uh, priests from a more uh, nuanced and multifaceted perspective. In the second part of the book, you questioned the validity of some models for the understanding of religion and Egyptian priesthood in Greek Roman Egypt. Uh, what are these models and what issues do you see in them? Yeah, so um, one of the, uh, of the views that dominated uh, the understanding of religion uh, in especially Roman Egypt and of the, of the temples was that once the Romans conquered Egypt, uh, they had this attack against the, the temples. They tried to limit the temples as a, sor- as a source of perhaps rebellion. Uh, and this this has been repeated now and then, like the, the Romans cut funding to the temples, and then in the end, the temples ended up closing, and then the, the, the priests had to find new sources of income. So this was, in general, the narrative, and it's still followed in publications, in very recent publications in these past years. Like, I'm talking about two three years ago, so very recent. And actually, if we look at the the actual sources, there's no actual evidence to justify this intentional attack. There were different economic circumstances surrounding the Roman Egypt at different points. And actually, we can't talk in the same terms about the first century and the third century. Um, so what I do in this second part is in three chapters, I try to dissect uh, all these ideas and to look at the sources, the primary sources, and see if we can actually see that in the primary sources. So the first chapter is um, a deconstruction of this idea of the attack of the of the Roman administration to the, the Egyptian temples and the priesthood. And then in the next two, I deconstruct the models of the idea of the Egyptian priests turning into magicians once the temples theoretically had had closed in order to find sources of funding. And then in the in the 
third one of these chapters, I look at this idea of stereotype appropriation, the appropriation by the priests of this idea of the exotic magician in order to sell their expertise, especially to foreigners that were traveling to Egypt. We actually don't see, once we look at the sources, we don't see evidence to support these otherwise nice narratives, but they they make sense within themselves. But once you put them against the, the actual sources, they really don't work. So what I'm trying to do, and I bring that to the conclusion of the book, is to try to provide an image of what was the actual place of the priest within this uh, context, within this historical context, but also their religious and especially philosophical context. I think that we need to highlight more the role of these, of course, the, I'm talking about the higher ranking priests, their role as philosophers and as contributors to the different philosophical and religious movements that were taking place, not just in Egypt, but in general, in the in the Mediterranean and in the Near East at the time. What are you working on right now, um, Marina? Well, now that I'm finally done with the with the book, and that's mm-hmm. that has been a a, a nice relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, focusing mostly on the on the edition of of texts of astronomical texts. So I work especially on mathematical astronomy, on the edition of astronomical tables and also on the edition of astrological texts like horoscopes. So I actually have an article that is coming out this year, inshallah, in the next issue of the journal Encoria, uh, in which I edit and analyze an, astro- an astronomical table, a planetary table, uh, that is pretty unique. It's the one of that kind, the only one that has been preserved in Demotic, and it's actually the most complex one that we know. And it's really interesting because it gives us the terminology in Egyptian for the different phases of the planets, the, the events in the synodic uh, cycle of the planets. We only knew that terminology uh, for Mesopotamian texts and for, and for Greek texts, but we didn't know the Egyptian terms that, that were used. And they're interesting because to describe the cycle of the planets, the Egyptian the Egyptians used references to the cycle of the moon. And that tells us a lot about how they thought about the planets in connection to the other celestial bodies like the moon and the and the sun. And the other interesting thing in this table is that it gives us plenty of evidence of the use of a symbol for zero that was then adopted from the Motic to Greek. So actually it shows us how dependent the Greek tables are from the Demotic ones. And it shows a use of the zero as a divider that was only known up to now in in Mesopotamian tables. So it's actually a a table that is giving us so much that we didn't know about Egyptian astronomy, astronomy that I think that is going to actually expand significantly how we think, especially about planetary theory for this, for this period. I'm actually working on an article right now on these, all these ideas and trying to take them from the Greco-Roman period to the Pharaonic period, see how, how far back we can take this. So it's pretty exciting. Very thrilling and important work indeed. Thank you for speaking with us, Marina, and congratulations again on your book. Thank you so much, Fadma. It has been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the RC Podcast, and many thanks to Dr. Marina Escolano-Poveda for sharing her expertise. Please join us in February for our next podcast, where we will be starting our Kingship series. Our first guest will be Dr. Miroslav Barta. Please visit our website at www.rc.org for more information, or contact us at podcast at rc.org. Again, we are also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great holiday season and a happy new year, and we will see you next time.